Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Larry Bobo. I'm the Dean of Social Science at Harvard University, and this is our third episode of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. Our guest is Claudia Golden. This time, she is the Henry Lee Professor of Economics in the Economics Department and is the author of a major new book from Princeton University Press entitled Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Toward Equity. Let me first thank you for taking part in this conversation, Claudia. I, I often begin on a somewhat more personal note, and in this instance, I think it's it's easy to connect that, that personal note to uh, the subject matter and themes of your book. Career and Family is centrally about the changing and arguably improving position of women, particularly well-educated women who pursue professional careers. One starting point for me then is to ask you to think back to when your own career at Harvard began. So when was that and how many women faculty were there in the economics department when you arrived and, and how has that landscape changed if we look at it today? Yes, well, I arrived at Harvard 30 uh, years ago and I remember when I arrived, uh, the Crimson had a big article about the fact that the economics department had uh, tenured its first woman ever. And um, and I arrived here and was asked many, many questions about that, to which I responded, what's interesting is that I was the first woman tenured at three other places or given a tenured position at three other places, and no one asked me a single question about it. <laughs> so so I, I think that we were at the time, very consumed with the notion that we should, and it's a wonderful thing that 30 years ago, uh, Harvard was consumed by the notion that it should, uh, and it was going to be much better for it if it increased the number of women in certain fields, and economics was certainly one of them. So yes, I was the first woman who was tenured in economics at Harvard ever, but I was also the first at the University of Pennsylvania at Princeton and at Caltech, and no one said anything about that. But how things have changed in uh, what I see and, and what the data certainly reveal is that women who pursue these time-intensive, difficult, with upfront time careers in academia uh, that a greater fraction of them now uh, go on to have children, either biological or adopted children, and uh, much, much greater than when I was coming uh, up through the, um, through the ranks. And so when, when you started at, at, at Harvard, and it's fascinating to think of you as multiple firsts for different uh, institutions, were you uh, the only woman faculty member at, at the time? Were there other untenured or tenure track women in the department? No, there were, there were many uh, faculty members here, some of whom um, received tenure not much after. Uh, uh, for example, Caroline Hoxby. Mm -hmm. um, Susan Athey was, was also um, uh, came here not much later. So, uh, so there, there. Uh, so I, I'm not going to say that. Uh, certainly, I started a change, but there was a change in the air, 
and something was changing and something actually did change in a very big way. Beautiful. Um, your book opens with a discussion of an observation from Betty Friedan. And, and a moment ago, you mentioned something about the the time intensive nature of these highly demanding careers like uh, being a professor at an elite uh, Ivy League uh, institution. And Frieden suggested that that college educated women faced, quote, a problem with no name. So what is the problem with no name? Well, there's the Friedan problem with no name, which certainly uh, existed at the time in that problem with no name. Uh, the way in which she put it and the way in which I would put it are a little bit different, but let's let's uh, put it one way that we can all agree about. And that problem with no name was that uh, women who were college educated were sort of stuck at home. And, and uh, to her, they had um, limited vision. Uh, in fact, they didn't have such limited vision. They had more limited vision in her world sort of looking backwards than in my world that I can see sort of there looking forward. They sort of all had their what I would call get out of jail free cards in the sense that a very large fraction of them had majored in subjects that would lead to a very, very good job, maybe even a career after the kids were sort of safely in school. My own mother was one of those and and uh, became not just a, a teacher, she became a principal in a public school in the Bronx. So, um, and, and she lived to have a very fulfilling uh, occupation and possibly uh, even a, a, a career. But to free Dan, she saw my, uh, someone like my mother as sort of stuck at home uh, and, and not having as fulfilling uh, a life. So that was Friedan's problem with no name. We have a very different problem with no name now. Our problem with no name, which I will give a name to, is the problem that we have a tension between uh, uh, gender equity and couple equity. That to uh, for when a heterosexual couple has children or any couple, any woman has children, there are huge time demands um, on her, uh, on anyone with, with, with children. And it means that that conflicts with career time demands. And if careers are extremely greedy, uh, then what's going to happen is that the individual who spends more time with the caregiving is going to necessarily give up a bit on the career. And in, let's say, let's talk about heterosexual couples. If in heterosexual couples, it's the woman who disproportionately gives up on, um, on the uh, time and gives uh, the time for her career and gives more time to the childcare, then if jobs are greedier, then it's going to be the case that she is going to give up more on, on the career. And so couple inequity means that uh, we essentially are throwing gender equity under the bus with it. And that's really the, the problem. The problem with no name now is that we see that there are huge differences between what educated women 
earn and can do in the labor market, those with, with caregiving responsibilities. And the problem with no name then is the fact that there are greedy jobs. Uh-huh. Let me let me focus up a, a, a bit there um, on the on the gender gap issue. We, we see, for example, at least in the popular high profile cases of women, say, especially in the entertainment industry, really asserting now a much stronger claim to, to, to equal pay as as the men who are stars in films or music and, and the like. Uh, and of course, popularly, there's still great discussion about the gender gap in earnings now. Setting aside the complexities of precisely defining a, a gender gap in in earnings, what is the current kind of conventionally access, uh, accepted estimate of the size of the gender gap? Well, the problem is that there isn't one gender gap; that <laughs> there are many, many gender gaps. So, uh, so if we think about a college graduate woman and a college graduate man coming out of college or out of a professional degree program or a graduate degree program and entering the labor market, chances are when they land their first job, they're going to be pretty equal. But over time, and this gets to this notion, the problem with no name, the greedy work issue, that if they then um, have kids or have other caregiving responsibilities, one of them is going to step back a bit more. And then the differences between their earnings over time is going to grow and grow. So there isn't one gender gap. There are uh, gender gaps that change with the Asian experience of the individuals. So to say that the gender gap today, and we have computations, and I can tell you what they are, that's going to be 0.82. So women make on average 82 cents on the dollar. But that is a very, very particular slice of the entire working population. It's going to be the individuals who are, um, first of all, it's it's computed on weekly earnings, their medians for men and women, and they're for full-time year-round workers. But in in practice, there isn't one gender gap. Right. So, um, and... Uh, accepting that and but but also accepting that it still is an indicator of something that ought to be of of concern to us. I take it that uh, that part of your thesis or maybe even arguably the core thesis is that we really should be thinking of this, as you said a moment ago, as resulting from the tug between the obligations and duties of family on the one hand and the obligations and duties of work, especially of serious careers on the other uh, you write, for example, quote, the gender earnings gap is a result of the career gap. The career gap is the root of couple inequity. So can we drill in for a little bit on the meaning of the career gap? Sure. So let, let me get back to the notion of greedy work because I said the words and I didn't define them. So greedy work can be defined as a job that pays disproportionately more on a per hour basis when someone works a greater number of hours or has less control over those hours. You know, it can be a rush job, a demanding client who calls at 11 p.m. a supervisor who asks that the worker give up a vacation day for the project. The firm has deemed that the additional payment is worth it to have the work done over more hours. But the other critical aspect is that the worker 
has to agree to do it at that wage. So it's sort of supply and demand. So the point is that uh, this is sort of a complicated equilibrium in which the compensation may be insufficient reason for some workers, let's say women, to give up their time uh, or family life. But the compensation may be sufficient for some other workers, let's say men, to do the same thing. And so under those conditions, women will shift to firms uh, with less demanding hours or leave the workforce altogether. So for example, two workers, two uh, individuals who graduate from, from law school, uh, they might both take jobs in this big law firm uh, that's a greedy law firm. And then when the kids arrive, they one of them realizes, well, we can't both do this type of job. And so one of them then moves to the boutique law firm that has more cheaper flexibility. Uh, and uh, and the other one stays. Well, it turns out that, you know, given our norms and traditions, that it's generally in heterosexual couples, the man who will stay with the big ticket, high earning law firm and the woman who will move to the boutique law firm and do more of the caregiving. So that's really the root of the issue of the problem with no name today, which is greedy work, meaning that, um, that uh, when we give up couple equity, we throw gender equality under the bus as well. Uh-huh. So in, in a way, part of the, the challenge is um, who's going to be on call at home and who gets to be on call at work. And in that kind of dynamic, would it be fair to, to kind of supplement the vocabulary you've used by saying that families are needy and work in the form of elite careers are greedy? <laughs> or is that an unfair parsing of the argument? I, I actually should have had this conversation with you before I wrote the book because that's that's very, very good. I didn't use the word needy, but needy versus <laughs> greedy is absolutely perfect. Thanks very much. Okay, um, let, let me ask. Uh, in in most of the 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 book, and indeed in in our discussion so far, you really focus on the the college educated. Uh, can I get you to explain uh, why why that choice rather than say wrestle with the entirety of uh, women in the labor force? Well. Part of it is because I wanted to focus on careers and uh, and college is important to my story because it was and is a means to having a career. That doesn't mean that all careers require college. I mean, Mother Teresa probably we we would certainly say had an amazing career and and being. Uh, uh, important in certain ways doesn't require uh, higher education, but generally it does. And it sort of allowed me to limit the population in some manner and not deal with, uh, you know, the thousands of other things that that uh, one might have to deal with if, if one didn't limit it uh, in that fashion. But that's really why... Um, why I did that. And, and, and you might say, well, what do you mean by a career? And the definition of career to me comes from the etymology of the word. And the word means to run a race. It's the same 
root as in the word chariot or carriage. And it's any position that gives satisfaction and identity, one that the individual learns from, and it generally provides rising earnings or productivity with time on the job that's running the race. It isn't a sudden increase in income. Uh, rather, it is a position for which the individual is in it for the long haul, as in the race, although the person sort of can morph and change and you can have nonlinear careers as well. Uh, in the book, there's a very precise definition for the data, but I really like to think of it more as something, a, a, a position, uh, a métier, an occupation in which you are learning and improving uh, uh, over time. And in general, that requires um, an, an increase in uh, some initial amount of skills. And we generally think of that as education. Uh -huh. And um, thank you. So I uh, that really does clarify one of the key concepts and how you employ it throughout the book that, that was really of, of key interest to understanding your argument. The other, though, is family, right? So you, you need to have some workable and measurable understanding of, of both of these concepts. So um, how do you end up defining family for purposes of the analyses and argument you make? So family is really simple. It's just having a child, any child. It can be a biological child. It can be an adopted child. It can be one in the book, uh, it is not <laughs> required that women have a um, a partner, a husband, or a partner of of the the same sex. It is simply it's a very very simple uh, way of doing it. Simply to say you have a child. Uh huh. Very good. In and of course, from from me, it means that uh, dogs do not count. And as many people know, <laughs> I have a dog, not a child, but uh, he doesn't count <laughs> in my definition. Although I assume there are occasions where the the dog is needy, <laughs> and that somebody's got to be on call. The, the, in fact, in fact, I often say that to my friends who have children at some point your child will be able to make his own lunch my dog cannot <laughs> absolutely that's right that's right um in uh laying out uh the the framework you're going to to work with you you talk about uh the choices women make the ambitions women have and the opportunities uh women encounter and um can I get you to say a bit about the dynamics among those things before we turn to kind of the key organizing tool you use, which is a set of of um, essentially experiential cohorts of 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 women over time. So uh, there's a, a part of the story you tell us about exercising choice or or uh, autonomy in some way. Uh, part of it is what people aspire to do, and part of it is what's available to them. Precisely. I mean, there uh, there are a set of outcomes that I'm thinking about, such as uh, marriage or partnering, uh, children, jobs, careers. But at the same time, uh, individuals uh, are faced with uh, in these cohorts or these groups that march over time. They're faced with um, 
uh, huge barriers and constraints, some of them uh, actual laws and regulations, such as marriage bars and uh, anti and and uh, uh, nepotism rules um, that created all, all sorts of very serious barriers for um, for women uh, over the years, and and of course a set of norms and traditions that we carry with us. And even though we can strike down certain laws and set up others that are supposedly protective, we still have surrounding us uh, a set of norms and traditions that are extremely difficult to shed. Uh huh. So um, as I see uh, your argument unfolding, it's kind of clear to me individual choices are being made. It's also clear to me that opportunity structures can vary enormously over time. So, for example, I was really quite unaware of the former uh, anti-nepotism rules that, say, would have prevented a university or a department from from hiring a husband and wife or something like that in a particular era. That was that was surprising to me and interesting to learn and the way in which it, it varied and has now largely disappeared, I think, as a practice. But there's one thing that I think may be one of the key theoretical uh, underpinnings or levers in your argument. And co uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. And that's about how you think of ambitions and it seems to me you largely assume that everything else equal, women really do want virtually all of the same job prospects and opportunities as men, and that that's comparatively constant across the eras. Well, uh, I, I think that what I would say is that by and large, uh, if I took a woman who was born in 1900, and instead had her born in 1980, it would mean that she would have a very, very different set of, of uh, you know, barriers that she would face, far, far less. Uh, but my, my sense is that, uh, that the biggest change is the change in, the, in, in what surrounded her rather than, I mean, in what way, uh, is is she really different? Uh, well, we we could we could have all sorts of conversations about how this individual uh, uh, would be different or over time, or whether uh, at the beginning of the period we're selecting in the population from the uh, elite and the richer group, and I can discuss that a bit. But my sense is that the biggest changes over time are not really the preferences of the individuals, but the constraints and the barriers that they're facing, which are enormous and which change in very, very big ways. Now, um, one might have thought that many of the changes over time, since the fraction of uh, women and men who went to college and graduated from college a uh, hundred years ago was much, much smaller, far, far smaller than it is today, that many of the changes over time are because we've sort of expanded the type of individual who is going to college, who is able to go to college. And I can show that that for many of these large changes, particularly moving to what I call group three, that that doesn't matter very much at all, not at all, that I could take the same group, I could take a group, for example, of Radcliffe College students 
uh, who graduated in the early part of the 20th century. And I can show that that their family backgrounds are not much different than uh, a, an equivalent group that graduated some 30 years later. And yet the group that graduated 30 years later had a much, much higher fraction marrying and having children, different types of, of careers that they had. So the big changes are really the, uh, the set of opportunities that they've had. Now, whether or not there are differences between men and women in their preferences for spending time with children or having their career or not, is a, a, a somewhat different uh, set of questions. Right. Let me turn then, since you've started to, to introduce this, to the notion of the, the, the cohorts that you examine over uh, basically the century-long period from 1900 to 2000. Um, and uh, the first of these, each cohort is kind of characterized as um, some connection between family commitments on the one hand and career commitments and the other. And this very first cohort you call um, the family or career cohort or group one. And it's obviously, as as the title puts it, women who really had to make a pretty stark choice. If you wanted to have a family that is children, you really were giving up on the prospects of pursuing a demanding uh, career. Or alternatively, if you chose a demanding career, you were largely foregoing the prospects of um, having a family. And let me say that um, uh, as I start to describe this quickly and then pose questions about it, one of the, the the beautiful and really engaging things about how you've written this book is that you're bringing both your lens as a labor economist interested in the experiences and places of women in the economy with your background as an economic historian. So there are very powerful portraits of uh, women who have faced these choices and how it really played out in the texture of, of their lives. So the first cohort, who I think are entering the labor market at about 1900 to 1910, roughly, is the family or career cohort. There's a subsequent cohort, group two, that get jobs, not really careers, but they find employment and then um, establish families. Um after that, there's group three, which is uh, a, an era for women in which they tend to start families first and then the job comes along. And in many ways, this is kind of the the, the baby boom cohort, right, or, or who produced the baby boom, <laughs> I should say, uh, uh, in a way. And I'll come back to that one because that's where my own mother would, would be positioned. <laughs> I want to ask some questions about that. Uh, the fourth group is the career then family uh, cohort. Um, and then we get the much more contemporary or fifth group, which is uh, trying to get it all, the career and family uh, cohort. 
Um, so let me let me go back to your very first cohort and make this let this be an opportunity for you to sketch out what it meant for women who were college educated and faced in this era a really pretty stark choice between family or career. And you give one example of Jeanette Rankin. So who is uh, Jeanette Rankin and how does she illustrate this um, circumstance? Yeah, I'm hoping that somewhere there is um, a writer and a producer who will make the movie about Jeanette Rankin. As far as I know, no one has. And I don't understand why, because <laughs> she had a fascinating life. And uh, I mean, every one of the people um, that occupies a, a small space in my book, uh, one can write volumes about. And Jeanette Rankin is certainly one. And and uh, one of the she she was a first. She was the first woman in America elected to federal office. And um, I don't want to spend too much time on her because the stories are uh, involved. And I must say that I don't know enough about her because the movie hasn't been <laughs> produced yet. Uh -huh. But I can say that uh, she, uh, uh, she had a fascinating career, many, many different parts of it. And, and she uh, was... Uh, the one of the individuals who, uh, after she was elected to Congress uh, around the beginnings of, of uh, the Great War, World War I, uh, she was a pacifist. And so she voted against entry into World War I. She wasn't the only one who voted about that. But uh, of course, we entered World War I. She was, uh, she then ran for Senate rather than Congress. Uh, in 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 her state, uh, and she lost. Uh, she then did many many other things for a couple of decades, and then right before World War II, <laughs> yes, she comes back and she wins election, and she is the I believe the only vote uh, against entry <laughs> into World War II. So. Um, so she was a, uh, a strong pacifist, and, uh, and she also uh, worked tirelessly for the vote. So, um, so she, she I, I have no idea about her personal life, and my guess is that someone who was as active and interesting as Jeanette Rankin had a fascinating personal life as well. And so one of the things that sort of gets lost in a book like mine, in which I would say, well, Jeanette Rankin was in group one. She had career, but not family. I am not saying that she didn't have an active social and sexual life. I really don't know, but it would be a very, very interesting thing to, to, to know about. But the point is that she was not alone in, in her in her group, around 50% of the women who graduated college from 1900 to 1919, this is group one, uh, never had uh, a child uh, and never adopted a child. And about a third of that group never married. Many of them 
married very uh, very late in their in their lives. Many who did marry uh, married late, but you can see that fifty percent didn't have um, a child or didn't adopt a child. A third never married. That stands as uh, an extreme case, and of course, it's family or or career. What I want to think about, though, uh, is fast forwarding, sort of skipping over group two, sure. which is a transition generation to group three. And the reason is that so group three graduates from the late 40s to the mid 60s. And in many ways, the group one and group three are as different as night and day. In group three, almost all married. I mean, it's an amazingly high fraction. And the vast majority of the group that married had children over 90%. So, um, so that's that they are sort of night and day, but group three, as you said, had family and then had a job or a career. So it, in many ways, uh, unlike what Betty Friedan said, Betty Friedan would have looked at this group, did look at this group and said that they uh, had regressed, that they weren't as successful as the earlier group. But in fact, they were more successful because the earlier group, 50% of them never had children. And in group three, an extraordinarily high fraction did and they then succeeded to have uh, a job or or uh, a career, and then if we fast forward again, well, let me stop there yeah. for a second. Let's let's hold before we fast forward. I think you may be going to to group five then career and family, but let me pause on the family then job because, you know, it struck me as as in many ways capturing my own mother's experience, who. Um, Graduated near the top of her class from uh, Spelman College and then was admitted to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in a botany zoology program. And here kind of race discrimination or bias and gender discrimination or bias intersect. Her her mentor calls her into the office one day to say, look, it's, quote, um, a little unseemly for a young colored girl to be sailing through this program. So effortlessly as if she was being cooled out of pursuing this career and she eventually got the message and really uh left school abd she completed everything but uh the the dissertation and got the message that it was time to go start having kids in a way which is what she did to to marry and have kids and so it very much fit your your profile of family then job uh, but then becomes a, a, a public school teacher uh, teaching science and health and uh, uh, related uh, subject matters. So there's there's a job of sorts, but not the sort of career that that would have accompanied the Ph.D. in research and, and teaching in in higher education. And it just struck me how it it fit your characterization of um, this particular era. Precisely. And, 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 you know, on, on the one hand, we are thankful that she had children because or else you wouldn't be here to talk to me. I know I wouldn't be here. Now. <laughs> but, uh, there, there, there'd be a younger 
Larry to Bobo. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And, right. Uh, but what you're um, stating as well <clears throat> is that, is that she was faced still with enormous constraints yes. and the constraints were of many different types. And I think that, that I too could say, you know, it's interesting that your mother was going into a, a field that was changing very, very rapidly. She, she was thinking about um, doing a PhD in a field called zoology, which uh, had she done it, probably she would have morphed into something else. When I first started out as a college student, um, I too was dedicated to a field that uh, went through enormous changes at that time, and it was bacteriology. And I went to Cornell University, similar to Wisconsin, had an ag school that was a little more backward in its treatment of the sciences. And in, in, so there are lots of different constraints here. But when I went to Cornell, I went there to be a bacteriologist. I had done bacteriology uh, in college when I was in high school at the Bronx High School of Science. I was absolutely committed to it. But when I got to Cornell, it, I don't know whether it's because I'm, I, I am and was a female uh, that I did not get very much encouragement or because the field bacteriology, like zoology, when your mother was in it, was going through rapid changes. And the group that I was uh, going to be studying with was a little bit behind, but I didn't really get a lot of encouragement in terms of you should do this set of courses to do well in this field, which, uh, let's face it, in bacteriology, it, it morphed into what we see today, which is a far different field than just the study of infectious um, uh, pathogens. Yes. So let me go back to where you were a, a moment ago and and fast forward to the career and family or, or, or group five uh, stage and, and how we get uh, to that transition and how in particular um, kind of opportunity structures really change in some important ways. Sure. So... Um, so if we fast forward from uh, from uh, group three to uh, to group um, five, so uh, uh, so if we fast forward again, uh, both children and marriage are considerably delayed. Many continue with their education and try to cement their careers before cementing the rest of their lives. So in between three and five, of course, is, is group four. And group four was, once again, as different from group three as night and day. I mean, what's fascinating about looking at this uh, 100 and 120-year um, succession of generations is, is that uh, the continuity is sort of continuity of a certain type of progress but in fact, there are enormous changes. So group four, which is my generation, looked to group three and said, we don't want that. We, we want family and career, 
but we we don't want to jettison in some sense the the uh the type of career, we, we don't want just a job. We want something bigger than that. We want to be able to invest heavily upfront in our education. And the question is, how could you do that? You would have to put off marriage. You would have to put off children. And group four was sort of given an, a, a way of doing it. They were given the pill. And so they could delay marriage, they could delay having children without uh, doing anything different in terms of their sexual and social lives. They could just sort of put it off. And that's what group four did. It put off having children and marrying, invested heavily in, in further education. And what happened was that it um, it had uh, the highest fraction without children <laughs> since group one. And so group five, then looking back to it said, uh, you forgot to have the kids. <laughs> so we are going to, we're going to continue to delay marriage and, and, and children to cement the career, but we are also going to, uh, uh, cement the rest of our lives as well and 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 have the children. And group five actually increased the rate of childbearing by quite a lot. Let me let me turn in in some of the the time we we have left to to two other issues, one of which I thought was potentially a subject of some controversy. and you let me know if this is what you've encountered. As we think, one of the later chapters in the book is called Mind the Gap where you return to this issue of um, the gender gap and you state, and I I would think in many people's minds controversially, not necessarily scholars or economists, but popular understanding, that, quote, only a small part of today's gender earnings gap for the full-time workers around 20 cents on the dollar is due uh, to such factors as discrimination or women's presumed lesser skill and experience in negotiating uh, top salaries. Indeed, you conclude, but even if we eliminated all cases of discriminatory treatment and all instances in which women have been taken advantage of, the gender earnings gap would not narrow by much. The amount women earn would not rise substantially. Has have people reacted against that declaration uh, or or did you regard it as controversial when you you put it uh, in the book? So um, I, it, it probably is controversial to some, but I have not received a tremendous amount of pushback in part because I always say that uh, first and foremost, uh, there is discrimination, there is sexual harassment. There are cases in which women do not uh, negotiate as well as, as, as they sh could do. And that these should be changed. That these are, um, the, the, these are what I call the, the cockroaches of the labor market and we should, we should stomp them <laughs> yeah. out. And, but even if we brought in the giant exterminator and got rid of them, and, and they're, you know, just like cockroaches in the New York City apartment, they're always going to be there. They are always going to be there. 
And so, um, uh, so it's, it's not as if they don't exist. But I think that the reason that um, many people have read my book and said, yes, right on, thank you very much, is that this is that what I'm talking about in terms of the role of greedy work and the notion that there's couple inequity and that couple inequity is at the root of much of gender inequality, that in many ways, that is the dirty little secret that we all know. Very much so. Um, let me uh, add one uh, further uh, feature to the discussion, which you you take up a small bit in the opening framing of the argument and then expand even further toward the conclusion of the book about how the COVID-19 era has really reopened a focus on uh, the working lives of women and how much greater tension they often face with their home and family obligations than men that that the the pandemic era has really brought to the surface in some important ways. So can you speak to how you characterize your argument as you put it BCE versus DC before the the COVID era and now during COVID and however it continues to unfold? Yes. So I was writing the book and I'd written much of it uh, uh, in the famous month of March of 2020 and COVID hit. And I realized that I was, um, that the world was given a disaster and I was given an opportunity. (laughs) And so COVID put a, a magnifying lens on the era that preceded it, what I call BCE before the COVID era. So the COVID era has given us a far better understanding of the role of care for children, for the elderly, for sick family members. Uh, It has given us a better understanding of the mental burden of being the caregiver, of being the household manager. And uh, we had begun, and I hope that we continue it at some point, we had begun a national conversation on care that we haven't had for a really long time. And as a historian, I could tell you when we've had these conversations, but we have a far better understanding and sense of the extreme risks, for example, of not having sick leave policy, of having a huge number of nursing home residents who died because of that. We have a better understanding of the fact that low pay for these workers meant that they were working in several homes. And and that led to some of the worst abuses in nursing homes. So so the COVID era put a magnifying lens on many of the issues that we have always had. And suddenly we can see them uh, more clearly. Whether we have the national strength to do anything about it is another issue. So, um, and this this gets me toward toward uh, some of the you know larger implications of of your argument and what you would want to draw draw out of them. Um, 
what do you think public policy, if anything, should be doing now to um, get us to a more equitable career experience for women? And are you sanguine about the prospects for us uh, getting to a state of, of much deeper, genuine couple equity? So I think of, of change itself. So there's change that occurs because of public policy. There's change that occurs uh, sort of uh, systemically. There is change that occurs because firms find it profitable to change. So let me put these together and and some of them you'll see are public policies. So um, there are sort of three types of levers. One would change relative prices of care, of child care and elder care. A second one would change the, what I call the price of flexibility or the productivity of the more flexible jobs. I talked about greedy jobs. The opposite would be the more flexible jobs. So greedy jobs are jobs for which the price of flexibility is extremely expensive. So the second um, type of, let's call them policies, would change the cost of flexibility. And I want to say a bit about that because uh, the COVID era may, in fact, there may be this silver lining to this extremely dark cloud in the fact that we may see that there is a change in the cost of flexibility. Uh, I'll return to that. The third point here is the most difficult one, which would be changing the social norms and traditions that we carry with us all the time that we pass on from generation to generation that are really very difficult to, to change and that, that in some sense constrain women in heterosexual couples to be the main caregiver. But let me return for a moment about the um, COVID era and, and what may be the silver linings. And that is that many of the most lucrative jobs are jobs that are, as I said before, that are very greedy jobs. Among the most greedy jobs are the ones that require that you uh, travel, that you uh, go to Tokyo to sign a contract, that you go to uh, Zurich to take part in a merger and acquisition. Uh, those are jobs for which the individual who had major caregiving responsibilities couldn't possibly take. And so those were the greedy jobs. And we see now that uh, we may not have to do all of those. Uh, firms could save on the costs of, of travel and hotel. They can hire uh, the very, very best workers who couldn't uh, do this sort of traveling. So in fact, uh, we have seen that the cost of flexibility, the productivity of flexible jobs has changed. The cost of flexibility has gone down. The flexible jobs have become more productive. Uh, the greedy jobs have become less greedy or some of them have become less greedy. And so, uh, so that is not a public policy 
but that is a something that has come about in some interesting way. A public policy would involve changing the price, the relative price of childcare and of elder care. And we saw that incorporated into uh, some of the um, Biden bills that, um, uh, as I understand it, uh, are sitting somewhere on the floor of Congress. Sadly. Well, let me push you a little more on, on are you sanguine on getting to greater couple equity? I mean, as you think about your own somewhat explicit theory of the prospects of, of what has driven change over uh, this century that, that, that you examine, and you point to lots of change, including lots of very positive change, um, uh, do you end up on, on a kind of hopeful note or are you just going to see how the data unfolds? I think that um, uh, I am a very sanguine person, and part of the reason that I'm sanguine is that I, as a historian, I look back and I do see a lot of progressive positive change. The reason that I wrote the book and wrote it in the manner in which I did, sort of I linked together this long period of change, 100, 120 years, however you want to measure it, of of change in these cohorts, these groups, passing a baton from one to the next. Uh, The baton, essentially, a set of warnings to the next generation, what to do, what not to do, is I link that together with the fact that we can see today that we aren't yet there, that that there is a problem with no name that I have given a name to, and that it would be wonderful if, if that problem could be solved. Uh, so in some sense, I'm always sanguine because as a historian, I look back and I do see progressive change. I don't see that Uh, We are stuck in the present because I can see in the past that there has been change. Exactly where the future change is going to come from, uh, I can't say. Well, thank you so much, Claudia Golden. And in particular, thank you for this very uh, impressive, insightful, and uh, really uh, authoritative book, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Toward Equity. It has been an enlightening and pleasurable conversation with you, and uh, I look forward to our next opportunity to connect.